You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have said your word's living and active, it's sharper than any sword, penetrating to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. You have made it able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So please enable me today to speak your word faithfully. Please cause it to do what you have promised it will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. I want to start today uh, with a story, one of my favourite stories in the Old Testament. Uh, You can find it in 1 Kings 18. It's the story of one of the great prophets of Israel. His name, Elijah. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom in the days of a certain king, Ahab. Now, King Ahab stands out in the Old Testament. Uh, You might remember him. He is one of the notoriously bad kings. In fact, the writer of Kings sums up his reign in this way, in 1 Kings 16. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the eyes, in the Lord's sight, more than all who were before him. Uh, Then, as if following the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal, and bow and worship to him. He set up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So that's King Ahab. But now let me tell you the story of one particular day in his reign. In his days there was a particular prophet of the Lord Ahab didn't like him very much because he kept telling him God's perspective on his reign and God was not terribly impressed actually. Uh, Anyway, one critical day, Elijah, the prophet, threw out a challenge to Ahab. He clearly wanted to show that the gods that Ahab had chosen to worship were not anything beside a real god. So he told Ahab, gather all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel. He urged him to bring with him 850 prophets of Baal and and Asherah that he had on his payroll. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of uh, priests and prophets, isn't it? So there's a huge gathering on Mount Carmel. Elijah turns to the people of the Lord and he says, and then we're told, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. There's stony silence from the people of God. And then Elijah proposes a test that would see, show who the real God really was. The prophets of Baal will set up an altar for a sacrifice. Elijah will set up an altar for a sacrifice. And then each of them will call upon their God to start the fire. No matches or anything like that. Right? The God who causes the fire to start will have shown himself to be a real God. The prophets of Baal are given the first try. They build an altar, they begin to call upon Baal to do his stuff 
Uh, there, there's lots of dancing, working themselves up into a frenzy and shouting out to Baal, their God. And there is Elijah looking on. It's one of the great humorous moments of the Old Testament. This, And at noon, Elijah begins to have a go at them. He says this in verse 27. Shout loudly, for he's a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Or maybe he's out on the road. Or perhaps he's sleeping and he'll wake up. Anyway, the prophets of Baal continue to work themselves up. And they begin cutting themselves with swords and engaging in self-mutilation in order to make their God do something. But the day wears on and Baal is very silent. Nothing happens. So then Elijah's turn comes. He repairs the altar to the Lord that had fallen into disuse. He digs a trench around it. Three times he pours water over the altar and the sacrifice until the trench is filled with water. Then he prays a simple prayer. And God sends fire from heaven. And the sacrifice is is consumed along with the wood, the stone, the soil and the water in the trench. The people of God see the difference. They fall on their knees and they say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now let me tell you that what happens here is what God does from the first page of scripture through to the last. God the creator and king is always putting alternatives to the world and his people. Always. He's always calling upon them to look at the different different options before them in terms of deities, people to worship, things to worship. He's constantly telling them there's an appropriate action and an inappropriate action before the real God. And one action will lead to God's honour and relationship with God and the other will lead to God's dishonour and a breach of relationship with God. Now let's return to the books of Samuel with that perspective. The stories we've been exploring in 1 Samuel are less blatant than one I've just told you. They're, they're less blatant than the story of Adam and Eve in the garden or the story of people of God, just like we've read. Nevertheless, in 1 Samuel, I think God is putting uh, alternatives before his people. I think it's happening all the time. And as he does, he's telling them how he wants his people to live. He's telling us how he wants us to live now. So with that in mind, let's turn to 1 Samuel 7. Have it uh, open in your Bibles or digital versions or whatever. Let's see what we can learn from the ancient story that will help us live in a contemporary world. What can we learn if we are Christians? And what can we learn if we're not yet Christian but are exploring Christian faith? So with that background, let me introduce you to our passage for today. My own view is that our passage links back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And when you combine or compare 1 Samuel 7 with 1 Samuel 4, you can see two alternative approaches to God. You can also see the results of those two alternative approaches. So these chapters are, I think, uh, let's put it like this, they're they're like bookends to this section of scripture. 
They're bookends in the story that is centred on the Ark of the Covenant in these chapters. The Ark of the Covenant, you see, is a representation of God's presence with his people and it's a very important symbol. Anyway, what I'm going to do is explore our passage today with chapter 4. So you might have to do a little bit of flipping if you can. Okay? Uh, The links are there in the language that is used. The links are there in the similarity of the events that happen. And these two chapters are sort of, like I said, bookends. They summarise, they present what I think is a theological summary. So that background, let me introduce it to you. Um, uh, actually, I should say a little more. And the alternatives that we find, I think, will help us because we'll see what's in front of us as well. We'll learn great things about how we should and should not relate to God. So let's get started. I think the best way to do it is uh, to put it uh, to you sort of pictorially. So I, I hope my slides will work in doing that for you, at least giving you a summary. Um, but if not, like I said, put a finger or whatever if you've got physical Bibles in uh, four and another one in six. So... Um, Here we are. Let's go first to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Each passage that I'm looking at has Israel facing a problem. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the problem is a military problem. It's outlined in verses 1 to 2. The Philistines are present in the land. The Philistines were a group of ancient people who emigrated from southern Greece into the coastland of Canaan. They sought to dominate Canaan. They were sophisticated, powerful, aggressive. So that's the problem, the Philistines. It's it's a military problem. You can see that in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. But things are a bit different when you flip to chapter 7. Look at 1 Samuel 7, verse 2. Here the problem is a spiritual one. God seems distant from them and unapproachable. We read, the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. 1 Samuel 7 verse 2. Let's see how they try and deal with the problem, the absence of God. Again, we have parallel movements between chapter 7, 4 and 7. In each chapter, there is a reflection and a consultation and a decision. Have a look at 1 Samuel 4. Look at verse 3. The consultation here is secular in nature. It involves elders and soldiers. They ask the why question in verse 3. Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Now look at chapter 7. Here Samuel, a spiritual leader of Israel, initiates a consultation with the whole house of Israel who are longing for the Lord. Chapter 7 verses 2 to 3. And the question why is not explicit, but it is presupposed, I think. Eventually, in both chapters, a decision is made. In chapter 4, verse 3, the decision is to involve God. I suspect that it has hints of seeking uh, to force God's hand through the manipulation involving the ark. In ver- verse 3 can be read with two nuances. Our version reflects it in a footnote. It should read like this. Then he will go with us and save us from our enemies. Or it could be read, then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. 
Now, let's turn back to our chapter for today, chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Samuel urges the people to rid themselves of idolatry. They should set their hearts on the Lord. They should worship only him and then he will rescue them from the Philistines. In other words, it will solve the Philistine problem for the people. In verse 4, we're told what they do. And they do this. They remove the foreign gods and they worship only the Lord. Now let's see how things work out in both chapters in, in results. What is the result of each encounter, of each mechanism? Well, look at chapter 4. In verse 5, they are buoyed up and they shout. The ground then shakes. In verses 6 to 8, the Philistines hear and are afraid. However, in verse 9, they decide to respond with human boldness and courage to be men and fight. And so the armies fight. And Israel is soundly defeated by the Philistines and humiliated, verses 10 to 11. The ark is captured. Corrupt religious leadership dies, verses 11 to 18. And a memorial of their defeat is captured in the naming of Eli's son-in-law, daughter-in-law's child who is called Ichabod, which means where is glory? And after naming him, she dies. Now, compare that to chapter 7. Again, Israel is scared, verse 7. But this time they seek help from the Lord through Samuel in verses 8 and 9. And the Lord thunders against the Philistines. That's verse 10. And the Israelites have a thorough victory. Can you hear the com compare and contrast? Verse 11. The Lord is spectacularly present with his people. There's also a naming that happens. Not of a child. No. This time it's of a rock. And this rock is called Ebenezer, which means, thus far has the Lord helped us. And it carries the implication that he'll continue to do so. Are you picking up the, the vibe here and what's going on? It's profound. So there's the story. Now the way we present it, I've presented it now, it's easy to see what's going on, isn't it? You might miss it, though, if you've read 1 Samuel 4 one week and then hold off and read it a couple of weeks later, you might miss it. But there is a strong and definite comparison and contrast going on here. Being engaged in, our writer is trying to show us something. God is trying to show us something. We're being told there are two options for the people of God. As they live with God, there are two options. On the one hand, they can look to their own human ability in that situation, they can pretend to involve God and manipulate God. They can drag out the symbols of his presence, such as priests and arts and other religious paraphernalia. But in the reality, the reality is he is not at the centre of their existence. That's the truth. In these passages, God appears to be warning that there will be a definite results if you have that first attitude. 
That sort of attitude will remove or distance God. It will distance God from his people, for their hearts are not with him. Even though it will not result in God's defeat, it will result in him being dishonoured. And it will result in his people being defeated and humiliated before the nations. God will use the nations to rebuke his people just as he had done with the previous history during the time of the judges. The other alternative? That's one alternative. The other alternative is that God's people will put God at the centre of their existence. They do this by putting his word at the core of their life. They do it by listening to God's word. And where that happens, God will be exalted and glorified. He'll be united with his people and his people will live long in the land that the Lord their God gives them. They will be protected and God will fight for them. That is the choice before Israel. That's what the writer of Samuel is doing with these two stories, I think. He's saying there's a choice. Which way are you going to go? Will you trust in horses and military might, Psalm 20? Will you go your own way of seeking human solutions to your problems? Or will you trust in the Lord your God who alone can solve the problems, even military and political ones? Now, it's not an easy problem, is it? After all these chapters that we've looked at over the past few weeks have led us into the psyche of Israel, haven't they? And what have you learned? We've seen a nation of people who are tentative and scared. They are a nation of peasants. Let me tell you a bit about them. They are surrounded by strong and powerful enemies. God has given this people a patch of land between the most sophisticated and powerful nations on earth at this time. And they are scared. And to trust God who is free and sovereign and therefore somewhat, somewhat unpredictable is a risky venture. It's, being, it's like being in Hannah's shoes. It's like being an infertile woman and somehow hoping against hope that God will reverse his, her, your infertility and give you a child. It's like lying, living in the constant expectation that God will do the miraculous and act against what appears to be the norm. You know the theory that Hannah spelled out in 1 Samuel 2? You know that it's not by strength that one prevails. Do you remember her song? It's not by strength that one prevails. God will give victory to the weak. But trusting is no easy venture. And let me tell you, that is the choice facing the nation of Israel in these trying days. Will Israel trust God? Next week we'll find out about the choice they make. And I can tell you, it's not the one we would have hoped for. Read ahead. But let's see what we can learn from this ourselves. You see, the demand on Israel, I think, is a very ancient demand. Think about it for a moment. 
It's a call to put faith and trust in God no matter what. It's a call to make the Lord the centre of our affections, of our life. To love him with all our heart and soul and might and strength. Deuteronomy 6, 2-4 and 1 Kings 11, 2-4. And it's that demand that God continues to put before us. He tells us, you have to be people of faith. And you must have faith that I am and I'm the rewarder of those who trust me. Hebrews 11. We must not be like the Israelites. We must refuse to trust in our own efforts in order to please him. Rather, we must trust in the death of the Lord Jesus and that that is all that is required to make us right with God. You see, we enter relationship with God by being people totally dependent upon him. You cannot enter relationship with God without that. And we go on in relationship with God by people being totally dependent upon God. From beginning to end, that is the way we live. The central claim of biblical faith in both Old and New Testaments is that we must look only to God in every need and in every circumstance. He is to be the focus of life for us. He is to be the centre of our affections, our decision making, our thoughts, our relationships and our desires. He is to be the focus of life for us. We are to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our might. That's God's great demand. Shared by both Testaments. And I need to tell you, it's a demand that is hard and risky. It's hard because it works against our normal disposition to trust ourselves and to work for our own good. Isn't that true? It makes you a dependent being and none of us like that. It's a risky thing because it means putting yourself into the hands of someone else. Maybe putting yourself on the edge. It means putting yourself at God's disposal so that he can do with you what he wants. And he may very well ask great and hard things. <laughs> but that's the life of God's people. Isaiah, he calls it, a, calls it a life of repentance and rest, of quietness and trust. It's alone a life of fullness. It alone results in God's honour and glory. It alone binds us to him. So if you're a Christian here today, take this on. Don't be like the ancient people of God. Trust in God. Trust in his son. And if you're not Christian here today, can I urge you to explore life with this God, the God of all the earth, 
The Bible says that the way to come to know him and live with him comes in the most accessible way. It comes by knowing and believing in his son. And fortunately we have records of the life and thought and deeds of his son on the pages of four Gospels. So read them through. Or get a Christian friend to read one of them through with you. And with that in mind, let, let's pray for each of those groups of people. Let's pray together. Father, for those of us who are Christians here today, please help us not to be like the ancient people of God. Please help us not to live a lie, but to trust in you and your Son and serve you with resolution. And Father, for those of us who are not Christian, we do pray that uh, this exploration in the book of Samuel might have opened the door for them to see these two ways of living. And we pray that you would draw them to your Son. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.